Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! Up you wake, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake! This is America. Don't get you slipping now. CIA owns this? No. No. Uh, independent aviation consultants. Oh, this is legal? If you're doing it for the good guys? Yeah. <laughs> Just don't get caught. This is America. Don't get you slipping now. I don't know. Something's like crossed over in me. And I can't go back. I mean, I just couldn't live. I know. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. I mean, come on, let's kick the ballistics here. Ain't no Uzis made in Harlem. I mean, not one of us in here owns a poppy feet. This thing is bigger than Nino Brown. This is big business. This is the American way. Yeah. I got the strap. Hey. I gotta carry him. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is good. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kautzer. And with me today, I have, I've brought back up. Actually, they'll probably be talking more than I will on this, uh, in this roundtable conversation. Um, I felt it was only appropriate that if we were going to be talking about Thelma and Louise, that it would bring on, um, my, like, I'll bring on our two female writers, uh, for this podcast to discuss some, a, a film that personally I, adore and I love and I have for this is really going to age me uh, since I was a teenager when I first saw it <laughs> so <laughs> without further ado I'm just going to go ahead and introduce them um, you guys know them you guys uh, know them both because they've both have separately been on the podcast just not together first um, I'd like uh, to introduce Marie Marie has been on the podcast before she's a staff writer for uh, the movie aisle uh, you've read her on you probably read her ongoing column Marie versus horror which is super fun and if you're not what are you guys doing go on to the movieisle.com and read her four uh her four issues or her four volumes so far of that particular column that she's going to be continuing to write and then um i also have olivia mo who just started writing for us she her first article just landed on the 19th of july which was a couple of days ago as we're recording this um she's also been on the podcast she was on a, just a couple of weeks ago for atomic blonde so with that how are you how are you ladies doing today pretty good how are you yeah doing well doing well very early for me it's like late <laughs> late afternoon for for Mar uh for marie and it's like mid uh mid morning for you olivia am i correct i was just about to say are, are you do you have coffee or tea or anything are you doing okay <laughs> uh, yes i'm doing fine i have had my i've had my avocado toast and i'm oh, working yes. through <laughs> and oh I'm working i through did <laughs> Uh, yes, I know. I'm being as basic as basic can be. But I figured if we were going to talk about a movie that is so... Uh, it's not basic. It's anything but. I needed some. I needed some basic. Uh, some basic food so we can really get deep into this. Uh, so we're talking about Thelma and Louise, released in 1991, directed by uh, Sir Ridley Scott, um, written by Callie Coury, 
and it tells the story of uh, Thelma and Louise, two lifelong friends who decide to go on a weekend retreat. Uh, things go terribly wrong, and it turns out to be, um, as one critic, uh, as one filmmaker who saw it and was inspired to make a movie, the title of her movie was uh, Two Days in a Lifetime. It really honestly feels like that in this movie. And so I'm just going to open it up to you, uh, to you ladies. I, I mean, of course, if I choose this mo uh, movie, it's obviously because I have a lot of affection for it. I have really deep affection for this movie. And I wanted to know what each of you thought of this revisiting it. Okay, um, Olivia, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. For me, uh, being a film student, I've obviously seen clips from this movie dozens of times in various classes. Um, also, just plenty of references to it in textbooks, and then it's been on TV various times, catching glimpses, glimpses of it. And uh, so this is like the most recent time I really rewatched it as a full film. And I have to say, um, through that and through some, I would say, more education in film and a history of film and just recent um, enlightenment of specifically gender in film um, and in the world of film and media, it has, I have a new look on the film as well as a new appreciation for it in its own way. And then I, I have other concerns for it too, just because of when it was made, but like I have a new outlook on it and I think it's a rewarding one, whether it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. What about you, Marie? Well, I'm a very old lady and I actually remember seeing it, I actually went to the, the cinema to see it when it first came out, that's how old I am. And um, I'll be honest, apart from a few clips um, on the TV here and there, I don't think I've actually sat down and watched it beginning to end until this week when I watched it yes. in preparation. And um, it's, um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed watching it. And, but there was so much I had forgotten about it. And what's, I think the things that I had forgotten about it are more interesting than the things that I had remembered. And I think the things that I'd remembered were the, the generic, you know, road movie, women on a, on a mission kind of thing. Yes. And I'd forgotten, um, because that's the thing that the, I think the um, pop culture reminds you of all the time. And then to watch it again and think, oh, I'd forgotten which we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, you know, the kind of other things going on there. I'd completely forgotten, and it was a, a revelation, actually, to sit and watch it again. Right. Um, so you guys talk about, uh, you talked about, like, um, it was interesting that you guys both had mentioned how it's the, it's the, the detail, the textual things that go on in this film that, like at least for me, I found very surprising, and I think that it sounds like you guys had both, uh, or you ladies both had uh, found something that was a little bit richer than what initially what like because this is this movie has been so ingrained into pop culture, and all it is, I mean, literally, it's like what's been ingrained in the pop culture is the same thing that a movie that's analogous to this that we'll probably get into at a certain point. Um, it's the jumping off the cliff. And the freeze frame. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the, the, or two women in a convertible. 
uh, howling at the sun and the open sky. I mean, those are the things that people remember about this film. Or the blowing up the, the of the big rig truck with two women like like being badasses shooting the the truck. But there's no context to any of this stuff in pop culture. It's just it's been it's been anesthetized. I I like to say I I I don't feel like sometimes pop culture is the best thing for a movie, i.e., Psycho, and especially for this movie. Uh, where it's one thing or two or three things and it just kind of seeps in. So it, I, I honestly think it's more like anesthetization than it is anything else because it's kind of insidious because you take a movie that people worked so hard on and is, when you watch it, is so much more observed than those moments and you just get those moments. So like people have this thing of, oh yeah, Thelma and Louise, they jump off the cliff. And yeah. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Like, um, Olivia, you were talking about something in regards to, like, you know, approaching it from a more modern uh, point of view, like with, like, I would suppose that it's like, you know, with the Me Too culture, with uh, gender equality, that's become a very prescient thing in, uh, in media and in pop culture. Um, was that what you were speaking of? Or were there other things that you were talking about? I think it was um, other things were inspired by the more recent mm -hmm. uh, with B2 and everything. I think it's just because it's all kind of collecting together into like one big explosion of just gender representation in film and authenticity and tr uh, the treatment of women in the industry. And so it wasn't necessarily in, I would say in connection directly to Me Too as well, mm -hmm. but um, it was, there were definitely like, some things that kind of just were going around in my brain when I was watching this and it felt like it associated that like for me what I noticed um what I came away with is is there a difference because of Susan Sarandon's character is there a difference in film or in general representation of women where masculine and maternal get mixed up because I feel like at times not to delve right into this but um, I, there are times where Sarandon is very maternal and I wonder if that comes across as masculine in comparison to Gina Davis or, and, and just like that whole, um, just representation, I think that's kind of what I was just get. that was like the one thing that stood out for me the most from rewatching is like, is there a confusion there? Is that the only respectable role is the maternal one because it's so closely so authoritative to a masculine one. So like I, that was just an idea I came across when I was watching it. You can take it or leave it. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I hadn't um, I hadn't considered it like that. Um, to me, um, I'm looking at the at Susan Sarandon's role and, and I've noted a couple of times how organized she is with everything. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that, no, to me, I suppose you, hmm, I suppose it's the antithesis to the kind of scatterbrain to be kind, uh, uh, Thelma, but the organized, but I think that organization, as we go through the narrative, we learn about why she is that organized or that controlled yeah. about, her about her life. Yeah. Her experiences have made her to be in this position where, you know, she, everything's neat and tidy. She dries that one glass and sets it on the side just before she takes off and everything is just and I and she starts to take control obviously as things go go haywire and um yeah I hadn't thought of it as masculine or even maternal 
I thought of yeah. it as control and organization but I think there is something in that isn't there how you know you you've got one or the other you have the organized and the scatterbrained yeah um, which is interesting for Gina Davis because she's so brilliant in real life yeah like, yeah to see her play this role I was actually I was actually impressed by it because it's believable but it's not discrediting her yeah as an actress yeah that's true yeah um, do you guys feel that uh, you guys were talking about the 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 opposites, uh, the the yin and the yang of of Thelma and Louise um, as they begin? Do you feel uh, like what I saw, uh, what I had seen, on what I was tracking through the movie was the ebbs and flows of that, and how ultimately they like through this journey they go from that yin and yang to like two halves of a whole like uh, like instead of being opposites being almost like like filling up gaps that they each one has like by the end um Thelma isn't necessarily uh isn't necessarily as scattered brained as she was and didn't uh, and as lost in <clears throat> in so many different directions and she's more centered and calm and whereas uh, Louise goes from that controlled, tightly wound person to somebody who's a little bit more liberated. And it's it's a love story without being... To me, it's a love story without being a love story. Um, yeah. It, it's... It's like the ultimate kind of love story because it's, it's the love story between two friends that ultimately never realized, I think, that they were at odds with one another and didn't realize that they didn't know one another very well, even though they may have been lifelong friends, but this is put this experience pushes them to that. Um, did you guys see something similar to what I'm seeing or am I just talking out of my, uh, out of my ass? <laughs> Reed, you want to go ahead, go for it. Well, I, yeah, no, I agree with you, Adam. I think it's, it is this balance um, that just keeps, you know, there, there are turning points and you up to a point you think, right, okay, Thelma's being a little bit, because of her experiences, she's never had to take control before. The husband does that. She doesn't have to think about what she does. She's not allowed to think for herself. And Louise does. She has a different lifestyle. And then as they spend time together, that, that balance, it kind of just, it is like um, scales balancing on either side and they each take something from the other and Louise lightens up and and Thelma starts to realize what her life is has been could be and I think you're right they do kind of mesh in the end it that sounds like each of them is lacking but um they kind of find things in each other I think that Actually, you do in a friend. If your if your best friend is exactly the same as you are, nothing grows. You don't. Mm. There's not much to get from that. I think in, in maybe when you're really young, when you're at school, you have. To be with people, you you get things from them that you don't have ordinarily from yourself. Is that yeah. too philosophical? No, that's. I agree, 100%. <laughs> that, that was beautifully put, yes. No, I could not agree more. <laughs> um, <laughs> how, how do you guys feel, uh, as me calling it more than, like, there's 
people that have like tried to label this a lot of different things, but ultimately, I feel like it is a love story. Uh, how do you would you feel comfortable labeling it that? Or uh, I mean, ultimately, it's a road movie, but I feel like it's it's much more of a love story between two people that actually find their perfect within their friendship. Um, I, I would say yes, love story, but I would all, I, it's not a romantic love in the sense there's okay. various kinds of love in the world, obviously friendship, uh, father, child, mother, child, um, romantic for me, I would say yes to love story, but it's not, it's, I, it's more of a chemistry. It's more of a just I would say kindred spirit compliment what I was going to add to what we were discussing just a few minutes ago was how they complement each other how they because of their differences and how neither one is truly um, in, uh, invincible without the other I know earlier I've probably done it already a few times what I found is that they because of their relationship because of the strength of it and just the vulnerability within it as well that there is a love story there, but also that I, I may or may not have mixed up their names just because when they are together, they become this one being that is just practically perfect in its own way. They complement each other. So I would say it's a balanced story, if anything, of just emotions, of love, of respect, and that's just relationships in general. Absolutely. Yeah, that's well put, Olivia. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, as we're talking about Thelma Louise and we're talking about these two characters, I feel like we can kind of it, uh, like um, bring uh, like bring the circle even wider and talk about the other characters within this film, um, be because this is such a strong. Uh, um, these are two strong roles for two very strong adept f uh, female actresses. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, uh, and I think that it it begs to comment that like. The script that's written by Callie Curry has them surrounded by males, like like it's just intrinsically all of the main all of the main supporting characters are male, with the exception of like two speaking parts, that like two female speaking parts. The rest are all male, and yeah, and those 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 women are waiting stuff as well, aren't they? That's, yeah, that's, that's yes, it, yeah, uh, and. I, I like doing my research. Callie Curry wrote this from the spec script that she wrote to the final draft to even going in and Ridley Scott actually had her come into the editing room in case there were any pieces of ADR that he needed like additional dialogue that he could come, she could come in and actually write the script. So she, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yes. Um, Ridley Scott has this tendency to do this is if you, if you're, if you have enough, if you're if you're a good enough writer and you can stay with him, he will keep you on as long as humanly possible. It's usually the writers end up burning out, but she didn't. She was one of the few that from from inception to release, she was a part of this. So um, from everything I've heard, it's basically Scott read the script, loved it, kept it as is and and mentioned this because. He didn't interfere with changing, adding in male figures into this. This is the way that she had written it. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the fact that they are surrounded by men um, mm -hmm. and men that are like 
it's interesting to me because it's like there's a role revert there's definitely a gender reversal because there's yeah. a there's a lot of one dimensionality but i think it's purposeful and i, I just wanted to know what um both you thought about it and i'll start with marie what did you think about that particular if you even saw that um in the in the in the movie itself i yeah i did um it hmm, where to start let, well, let's start with Harvey Keitel, because mm. I think what's really interesting for me watching him in that is, and he is the only one who actually, well, he's the only one not connected with them who really cares about what happens to them. He seems to see beyond what they've done. And he is kind of, he seems to see a little bit beyond that as to why they might have got themselves into this situation. Everybody else is just... It's all, you know, let's get the helicopters and the cars and as many guns as we can because they are dangerous armed criminals. And he has he's the only one with a slightly different take. So that he's an interesting character for me. The rest of them are a bit, um, certainly as far as the, the, the police side of it, would just seem very one-dimensional, I think. But I thought the other interesting character was uh, Michael Madsen. Yeah. If there is a love story at all, it's there. It's in that it's in those few scenes that he and Susan Sarandon have together. I thought that relationship was just was really beautiful. It and that's the other the other interesting male character. The rest of them, yeah, just pretty much are the reasons why they've ended up where they are now, I guess. Yeah. So that yeah. Olivia? Sorry. I, no, 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 no. It's okay. Uh Olivia, did you have anything to add to the to the mix with uh with regards to the to the characters and how uh, and how they're written? Um yeah, I d- I definitely agree with several of the points that Marie made. What I also found was um I found it interesting. I definitely feel that each male role, whatever it may be, whatever purpose they served, they served a purpose, whether it was to be the reason behind the women's actions or a reason for them to reconsider their actions. And I I liked it. It was an even balance of those because I feel like those interactions, good or bad, did influence the ultimate choice at the end of the movie as well as just their outlook on men in general. And I I found that to be acceptable. Um, for me, what I found interesting was it's one of the few standout or at least memorable moments of cinematic history where Brad Pitt's character kind of stood out to me because for so long in film, and even to this day after Thelma and Louise, there's always the attractive female sidekick in a film where it's action-based, and Brad Pitt was like out of my memory at least, the first male version of that. Like in the Road 2 films with um, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, there was always that one girl that joined them. And then you Mm -hmm. had like Wild Wild West with Salma Hayek. She joins Kevin uh, Klein and uh, Will Smith. And she's just kind of like this attractive love interest. And this was like the first one that really stood out to me because I'm like, oh, so Brad Pitt's just a pretty face. He serves a purpose and he is, you know, deceiving and in all of his shapes and forms, but he's like the only male equivalent I've seen of that. So that was kind of interesting that I uh, ran into. I, I, I think 
there was just those were two of the ones that really stood out the most to me while watching it was how that and how um shocked they were all by wait these women did what <laughs> like i loved the overall shock of everyone when they were just sitting around talking about this like women can do this like <laughs> no and i was just kind of like um yeah <laughs> it could happen <laughs> so i i just found that to also be kind of like a bit of dark humor a little bit funny at times because it's like yeah, why are you so shocked? <laughs> um, speaking about the script by Callie Coury, who's like uh, who I've been fascinated with since she 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 wrote this film, um, because like if you all you have to do is look at her her next film, something to talk about, which is yeah. which is wow, it is a um, a diametrically opposite film to this, where this well, is then you have yeah yeah sisterhood exactly. Well, yeah, you have Yaya Sisterhood, or you even have her work in Nashville, the first two seasons of Nashville. I mean, she's yeah. she's definitely, she has a voice, and I, I like that, and I like the fact that she's kept her voice, good or bad, throughout her her career. And what's interesting to me is how the script is constructed in a certain way to be whenever we're with uh, Thelma and Louise, everything is matter-of-factly. It's never, and... Thank God Ridley Scott did not approach it from, oh my God, this is the first time we are doing this. Because that is so annoying to me. And 20 years down the line, when you watch a film like that, you just kind of look at it and go, and you roll your eyes because it's, it's, they have to do everything. Like, it's like, they have to comment on it. And they don't. Like, Thelma and Louise, whenever they're doing something like, like, when, when Thelma, I'm thinking about the first time that Thelma robs the liquor store. And she goes in. Which is a great scene. I love her control on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I love about uh, what I love about it is when Thelma. We don't see Thelma's side of it. We we stay on Louise's side, and it's only like her screaming, hooting, hollering, starting to start the car, like any like any other bank robbery scene that gets played out in movies. Um, it doesn't it doesn't show it to us. Um, right away, it doesn't show like her being nervous. They don't really comment on it, other than, other than Louise like losing her losing losing her shit a little bit because they just she she knows that she's just gotten a, her into deeper trouble than than they were trying to be in. But I like the fact that it's never it's never a comment or a commentary when we're with them. It's only when we cut to the male authority figures or the male law enforcement or any male within the uh, with within the story that we get the commentary and it just it, it, like i i love how it it brings like this whole critique of male nature of ultimately like the all of these men cannot understand how these women are doing this like and it just proves how like latently sexist they are and oh, yeah. and how much at the like it, I mean it all leads to this whole this apex to at the end where they're surrounded by male law enforcement and it's just them and yeah. um did you guys find these these kind of touches with the script which by the way Kelly Curry won the Academy Award for this for this film it's the only Academy Award it won uh, but did you find that the script was as um as knowing and as as multi-layered as i saw it 
yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not an expert in script writing, so I'd, I'd hate to, you know, to be delving too deeply into it. But um, it is layered, and and I also think for when it seems sounds stupid to say for the time it was written, but um, there is quite a lot going on there that's kind of gradually threaded in and as you say we sit outside it sometimes and we discover it later through the eyes of these incredulous people um and i don't i was thinking well i it shouldn't surprise me that they're surprised and yet they are yeah um yeah yeah no, for for me also, it, it's I think it's because of the region of the world that they are in and the time period definitely have something to do with that. Um, I again, I'm also not an expert in script writing or script analysis or character development as much as the next person, but I I can I I definitely think it just it just comes with the region and the timing. And although it's you you would rather hear positive. Um, things in this case I, I think it serves again it serves its purpose it it makes you aware that this is what they're saying what they're doing is not equal it's not right it's not very nice of them so I think it kind of in the blatant or more I guess you would say hidden um, sexist comments or situations it makes you more aware of them and then it makes you question oh do I or do anyone I know say those things? How do I feel about that? So although sometimes it was very on the nose, I would say other times it's like, oh, I, you know, I never really thought of it that way, whether you're male or female. Absolutely. Um, so I'll start with I'll start with you, Olivia. Is Christopher McDonald as Daryl the stupidest husband of all time on screen? He, okay, I won't lie, he was so much fun to watch just because of that. Like, the scene where he changes the channel to the game real quick while the police officers are just sitting around waiting. It, it, he's in his own world, and yes, he is the biggest, quite frankly, he's a douchebag. But he is, um, he was fun to watch in that way. I mean, he's clearly... I don't want to say like a threat, but he's clearly misled in how he treats his wife and how he treats and views women in general. But he, I think because of the silliness of him at times, it makes it more like you can take it at the same time. Like you can, it's easier to digest his and then learn from his mistakes and his point of view. And although I don't really know because in the end, one of the last scenes we see him and he seems to have what looks like a change of heart. I don't know if he ever does. I don't, I don't want to go that far in, but I, I'd like to think that maybe he just reevaluates himself as viewers do after watching this, but no, he was just fun to watch because of his, his quirkiness. Let's go with that. (laughs) His own character brand. (laughs) Uh, Marie, um, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I I think what the, I do agree with what Olivia said, but I do think it's a bit kind because there was at one point when I just thought I know he's supposed to be a douchebag, but um, it I wasn't convinced that it he was acting specifically to be that. I wonder if 
I was wondering if maybe he was not doing the best job of portraying that character. Ooh, very good. Yes, I can see where, yes, I agree with that too. You, you've made a good point, yes. Like he wasn't going full on with the with, with the asshole husband role? Like he could yeah. have gone like 10% or 20% more? Yeah, or even if what he did was even, well, or maybe the other way, actually. Um, oh, to make it like I, less I, comical and make it a little I, bit more yeah, semi-serious? I, I wonder if it wasn't overplayed. Ah, I see. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, like, uh, do you think that, like, when I watched it, I kept on thinking of one thing. The mustache is too much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not, not in 1991. This is true. This is very true. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. dad still rocks a mustache like that. So, and oh, I mean, for him. <laughs> that was his era that, like, like from, like, you know, 80 to, like, 95. I mean, you know, so he, wa- he rocked that mustache. I mean, there was, but I mean, there's some, like, there's some, there's some choices. There's some choice, like, um, costume design thing or costume choices that they made for him that were just a little bit ridiculous though i will say um the moment okay so the thing the 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 one moment that stands out to me um in his performance in his entirety of his performance is the moment that he meets uh jd and that 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 moment of pure anger when he finds yeah. out he's been cuckled by a kid essentially and yeah. that's like, one of my favorite lines in the entire movie i like your wife yes that's mine in the inti- that was like one of my favorites and the way okay so i guess we can get into it which like you know the whole Brad Pitt of the situation i mean comes in like okay so comes in in three scenes and manages to make himself a star for the next 25 years. Yeah. Like literally, and I'd forgotten about it. And I will tell you like we're watching it with my girlfriend, uh, Christina, we were watching it. I mean, talk about thirsty. I mean, like there's just no <laughs> way about it. I mean, even I got a little thirsty. I'm like this kid. I mean, cause he's like, he's 21 well, in the, the movie. Rain. Yes. It's the rain, it's the moment, it's the Levi's with the shirt uh, the shirt off. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it works, and it's so funny to me, because I was going to ask, like, okay, so Ridley Scott basically essentially did a Tony Scott on Brad Pitt in the way that Tony Scott shoots women. I found that very interesting, that he turned, he really turned the, the tables on that, that moment, and made it all about, like, so I wanted to know, like, as as women, do you feel like it was the correct female gaze or was it was it one of those moments where you feel like you wish that a woman maybe had been involved in that kind of situation? Because it is kind of a it is a it, it is like one of those things like like in men's like in, in men's movies, you always have that moment where the the woman comes in and she's a stranger. She's shot beautifully. She's like and it's like a fantasy fulfillment thing. And this is kind of similar, but reversed. And what are your guys' thoughts on that? Because it is very different than what we've seen, even in modern film nowadays. Yeah. Marie, would you like to go first? Well, um, yeah, I think there is a lot of female gaze going on in those particular scenes. Um, and Brad does not have to do anything else other than be pretty. (laughs) (laughs) 
and and he does that really well um and yeah and i i suppose it doesn't i'm not the biggest fan of brad pitt anyway i have to say so maybe it doesn't have quite the effect on me as it might on other people but he is interestingly for me um Oh, how would, let me think how to describe this. I think he was at his best. It was a kind of like a weird Benjamin Button thing going on, because I don't think he's ever been more beautiful than in these three scenes. I don't think he's aging as well as. Well, I read that George Clooney was up for this role as well. It was between the two of them. I think George Clooney is getting better with age. Brad Pitt's <laughs> going the other way. That's me. Other opinions are available. That's absolutely fine. But I was watching it and I was thinking, yeah, that's 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 good. I I love the fact that he's, you know, we don't need to know much about him. Certainly not to start with, and um, the bits we do know are just integral to the plot afterwards. And yeah, he's beautiful, and the rain the rain's great. The rain and the hat and the water dripping off the back of it. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But I will say, and I don't know, Olivia, if you feel this this might this might just be me but the scene and this is a thing that you see a lot in films which are primarily directed by men is that two people decide yeah this is it this is getting hot we need to we need to start and they just go along and they'll just with one arm wipe everything off a table and there'll be glasses flying and i was watching this a lamp went flying and there's glasses ashtray everything just all over the place I can't do that. I'd be thinking, oh my God, we're going to cut ourselves on those bottles. Yes. What if the lamp catches fire? Now, I I don't know if that's just me and, and being over the top, but I can't. That just never seems real. It doesn't matter when it happens. No, it's I, awesome. Is that I just me? I completely agree with you. <laughs> it's, just, it's ridiculous because it's like, I, I bet if you asked any random person and their experiences in that part of their life, I, very few have actually done that or thought of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you got to clean up a mess. You may have to pay for something. Yeah. You know, it might not even break. And then you're like, funk. It's like, what is going on here? It's and there's like, a really comfortable bed just next to them. Just for goodness sake. Yeah. What, what's the fuss about? Yeah. Anyway. It's unrealistic expectations. <laughs> those are your expectations. It's just, it's I respect it for the entertainment value, but I'm like, yeah, no, that's not a, that's not a thing at all. Now, <laughs> yeah, awesome. maybe, maybe this is how you go about life, you know, maybe you just throw things all over the floor and maybe, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm a man, but I don't, I, I, I am not reckless like that. <laughs> now, there's other ways to show your passion about something. Exactly. <laughs> don't involve costly breaking of anything so we're good here like exactly <laughs> i mean nice flowers always help you know like yeah <laughs> i mean well thank god it was like it it, it was it was thelma um and not louise because oh, yeah. you know louise would have stopped mid-sentence and just said no 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 this i don't oh, care yeah. if you're brad pitt Grow up. it doesn't work kid i'm sorry but i'm gonna have to clean this shit all up after you leave which i know you're gonna do so let's just not do that um yes. My, one one of my favorite lines um, is actually in in the in the JD scenes, which is um, it is when he's walking away um, the first time. Louis uh, Thelma looks at Louise and goes, "He's got a cute butt," 
And she goes, Daryl doesn't have a cute butt. You could, uh, she's like, he ain't got nothing. Uh, you could park a car behind the shadow of his butt. <laughs> I nearly lost my shit when I heard that. It's just because of the way it's such a it's such an unfettered moment. It's such an unguarded it moment. Yes, exactly. And it was like those southernisms that I love. Um, yes. <laughs> which Dina Davis plays like a very hyper realized version of a southern like uh, of a southern housewife. But man, is it a lot of like she has a lot of fun and I have a lot of fun with her, with her southernisms. And the I've always felt that Gina Davis was a great um, was a great wordsmith. She could play with words better than the yeah. rest of them. There's a movie that's highly underrated to me um, called Speechless. Uh, that's with her and Michael Douglas or no, not Michael Douglas, wrong, Michael, wrong, Michael, um, the good Michael, uh, Michael Keaton, um, where they play dueling speech writers. And it's like a love story. It's like a, like a, a mid nineties, spe- um, rom-com, but they're constantly going at each other and they're constantly flying the barbs. And Gina Davis does so well with that stuff. You give her as much dialogue as humanly possible and she can spit it out in like half the time that normal actresses can. She's truly gifted. Like, I remember when we were doing the Atomic Blonde, we were talking about Charlize Theron. I believe Gina Davis was the Charlize Theron of the 80s and 90s. Oh, most definitely. She she definitely is. Um, uh, so, with... Um, with that, it's interesting to me, like, the, these two performances... D- like, did you know that they both were nominated for Academy Awards? Which is something that's never happened, uh, like, I was researching it. It, it hadn't happened until, like, it, it had happened once in the 40s. But it hadn't happened again until until this moment. And it hadn't happened since. Like, these two actresses nominated for Best Actress. Not one for Best Supporting and one for Best Actress. Um, they did lose out. Do you guys know who she, she, they, lost, she, uh, they lost out to? I read that. It was Jodie Foster, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I believe so, yes. Like, could you imagine that? Okay, so uh, I was... That's just... a wonderful three. Like, I wouldn't even know who to pick out of those three, honestly. Yeah. But yes, either way, it's a winner. Okay, so so I'm going to give you the listing of the... Okay, so think about this right now in context. This is a murderer's row of actresses that were nominated that year. Talk about getting it right. Okay, so Jodie Foster wins for Silence of the Lambs. But then you yeah. have Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis for Thelma and Louise. You have Bette Midler for The Boys. And then you have Laura Dern in Rambling Rose. Oh, my God. So who do you choose in that, like, just like just looking at those actresses, that's, like, that becomes, like, important actresses either from before, af- during, and after this era. And it's, like... Wow, like I didn't think that the 91, 92 Oscars were 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 like anything to write home about until I started reading about them for this this film and realizing wow, there were some strong heavy hitters here. Like um I mean we'll get into the Oscars and well, I mean we can get into it right now. Okay, so you have two Best Actress nominees. You have a Best Director in Ridley Scott getting nominated. Uh, best uh, Best Original Screenplay, which won Best Cinematography by Adrian Biddle. But no Best Picture nomination. So I'm going to tell you the Best Picture nominees. And I want to know from each one of you, would you drop one and put in the other, uh, put in Thelma and Louise in its place? So, oh, okay. So okay. the one that won was Silence of the Lambs. You have okay. Beauty and the Beast. Bugsy, 
JFK and Prince of Tides. Oh. Wow. I haven't seen Prince of Tides in in a while, so... Same. That and Bugsy I haven't seen in a while either. Mm. I have to go with Bugsy, though. I don't... Mm. Now, you see, I, I, what, you mean to drop Bugsy? Yeah. Yes. Nah, you see, I, I think that's... Yeah, I can see why it would, but I also see that's so different. Yeah, it's... I would want to leave it in. I honestly... Ooh. That's a tough call, isn't it? That is. That's like picking out of the five actresses you named. Like, I, yeah. I honestly don't know... That was a hard year for the Academy, I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. Well, who won the director that year, then? Was that? Yeah. Jonathan Demme for Silence of the uh, Lambs. okay. Yeah. Which, which is ironic because if you think about it, like, okay, so the people that were nominated were Jonathan Demme for Silence of the Lambs, John Singleton for Boys in the Hood, um, Oliver Stone for JFK, and Ridley Scott for Thelma and Louise. So it's like, oh again, God. again, who do you pick? Who who do you pick? I mean, do you pick John Singleton, the youngest, uh, the youngest director to be ever nominated for an Academy Award, who arguably re- makes directs the first, like in a series, like in in a very important genre, the the like you know the hood genre as they would call it. Yeah. Or, but I mean, it's a very important genre t- to move past because I feel personally, I feel without that genre, we don't get Black Panther in the way that it is. No, we don't. There's a lot of things that would not have come without it. Mm-hmm. But Bugsy is the last really great Warren Beatty performance. And if you've been a lot, if you were alive for Warren Beatty, you like, you knew what Warren Beatty meant. And that last, yes. I mean, and Bugsy's like, I've, I've, I saw it about five or six years ago, actually projected. It's a beautiful movie. Um, JFK is like basically every docudrama that you've ever seen from that point forward. Like mm-hmm. Oliver Stone, uses multi like you know uses multimedia in a way that was about 20 years ahead of its time i mean documentaries are doing exactly what he does in this movie now now and they're and and people are calling it cutting edge and then you have ridley scott making probably at the time and i would make an argument that it's one of the top five like movies about women like in the last 25 to 30 years so it's like it becomes almost impossible. Like, I mean, like the best picture, I automatically thought, OK, well, you know what? You take out Prince of Tides. But I forgot how good Prince of Tides is. And like what? Like, I mean, it's it's like, wow, like you, you just can't, but then you, I think like, well, Bugsy, but you kind of can't take Bugsy out either. So yeah, it's like maybe, it, maybe I would switch to JFK then now that I think about it. I mean, I don't hate it. I just I think if I had to choose one, it might be that. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Mm-hmm. It, that, that was 1991, 1992. Yeah. But if you're doing it now, you can have up to 10. So stick it in anyway. Make it. Just make the list longer. <laughs> yeah, there I you like... go. Marie solved it. She solved it. Yes. <laughs> I like that. I like that idea of not having to do anything and just adding it. Um, yeah. Either or. Just do both. Why not yeah. both? You know? Yeah. Uh, w- uh, like, what's funny to me is also, like, I was when I was researching it, um, best best supporting actor is hilarious to me so okay so listen i'm gonna go in descending order for you guys so that you can and then i'll tell you who won 
the last time. Okay. Okay. So you have Michael Lerner in in Barton Fink. He's the guy that plays the uh, the the studio head in Barton Fink. Yes. You have Ben Kingsley playing Meyer Lansky in Bugsy, who's just great. An, an Englishman playing a guy from New Jersey. I mean, it's just, it's classic. And it's Ben Kingsley. I mean, come on. Yes, exactly. You have Harvey Keitel playing Mickey Cohen in Bugsy. You have JFK, or you have Tommy Lee Jones from uh, JFK, um, the main bad guy. And it's like the first big, big role for him. And then the guy who won. Jack Palance doing one arm push ups in City Slickers. <laughs> like, like, you think that they kind of get it right, and then they do something like Best Supporting Actor, and you're like, oh, this is the Academy Awards. I forget. So, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, it, it, but then you also go to like Best Supporting Actress, and you've got, you've also got Murderer's Rose. You've got Jessica Tandy and Fried Green Tomatoes. Kate, yeah. Kate Nelligan. Uh, <laughs> Kate Nelligan in Prince of Tides. A 15-year-old Juliette Lewis from Cape Fear, Diane Ladd from Rambling Rose, and then the one who run, uh, won um, Mercedes Rule for Fisher, Fisher King. Like, I mean, any one of those are acceptable. You yeah. know, it, it's just, it's, it's amazing to me to go back and look at these, look at this Academy Awards and go, wow, this was yeah. pretty, I mean, like Best Supporting Actor, or Best Actor too. I mean, you've got... Everybody who was everybody in the 90s. Anthony Hopkins won. Um, you have Warren Beatty for Bugsy. Robert De Niro for Cape Fear. Nick Nolte for Prince of Tides. And, of course, Robin Williams for Fisher King. And that just wants to makes me... Like, I just watched the um, Robin Williams documentary and it just makes me want to cry now all over again. Yes. <laughs> so, which I, I would actually plug to both of you and to my audience. If um, if you guys have HBO, Marie, I don't know if uh, when it's actually coming out for you guys, but there's this great, wonderful documentary that they did um, about Robin Williams. Um, that's um, that's basically from the seventies to his um, to his death, and it's just this amazing documentary. Um, made me cry multiple times. Actually, made me cry more than the Mister Rogers documentary. And I'm not. I was just about to say, I've heard brain tissues. Don't wear any eye makeup. It's going to run. Oh yes, <laughs> Mister Rogers, especially if you grew up with him. The last. Oh yeah. The last two minutes is just yeah. It's the waterworks. Oh. So, um, but yeah, like it's always interesting to me to go back to the Academy Awards, and I rarely get to do that on the B Movie Podcast because we're not talking about Academy Award winning movies <laughs> like Thelma and Louise. Um, uh, so, uh. This film, so, like, it bothered me watching it this time, and I didn't know why. And so this film was not filmed in the Midwest or in the Southwest, I guess, or, like, you know, in the area that it was uh, it was supposed to be filmed. It was actually filmed in my backyard. Um, it's not really my backyard, but it is. It's filmed in Bakersfield, California. Bakersfield, California is about a three-hour drive away from me, and it looks nothing like Oklahoma, Arkansas. <laughs> Nothing like it whatsoever. So that bothered me, though. Once they get into New Mexico and uh, like they get into the New Mexico area, they really did film in, in there. But um, I always find it interesting when I know something like that and it, it distracts me. Did you uh, like Marie from a 
from from somebody who's uh, from the UK, like, mm-hmm. do you have those things in films where you'll be watching a movie that was shot uh, shot in the UK and it'll be supposedly a specific region, but it but you can obviously tell it's not shot there. Uh, do, uh, do you know we're such a sm- compared to you, we're such a small island mm-hmm. that actually things will tend to be shot in the. So if you say I live in Manchester, if something is set in Manchester and they say it's set in Manchester, they will film it in Manchester because you would recognize that it wasn't filmed, if, that it was filmed elsewhere because the cities are kind of generally recognizable. You could tell the highlands of Scotland maybe from uh, East Anglia flatland, mm. but um, I, I think it, we have less to play with in that sense. So um, the only thing that happens now and again is that people will come to Manchester City Centre and there's an old part of it um, near the main station uh, that they use a lot for, it stands in for New York in the 40s. They used it for um, the first Captain America film, the bit where, you know, the bit where he he comes out from his... um, a transformation and chases the chases Clive Owen along the streets. Yes, and he's just running, and he runs and runs and runs. He's actually running down about two hundred yards worth of the same street in Manchester over and over again. But the way they cut it, it's supposed to be a big long chase. And then when he ends up in the water with him, that scene is in Liverpool at Albert Dock, and it's to someone who lives in the area, it's really obvious. It's like there's no way. <laughs> You ran. That's 35 miles. I, I know you're Captain America, but you did not run that far. So <laughs> things like that, things like that you would notice. But the, the difference between, and I've driven a little bit around um, where, if I, well, the bit of California I know is not that. I know it was kind of around uh, Napa Valley and then across towards uh, Nevada, around there but that's the only bit of, of that country i would know and i've never been further south than uh, louisville so honestly it all looks like big deserts to me and and uh, it did, that didn't make any difference but then i don't know it you do <laughs> yes well actually i was going to ask um i was going to ask olivia because you live in uh you live in the ohio area um yeah so, like, and actually, Marie, this is a great, that's a great transition because I know for a fact that um, both Captain America, Winter Soldier, and Civil War were both filmed in the, um, in, um, in and around Cleveland. So, yeah. and ah. it's, and it's. Some of the Avengers movies definitely have made their way through our streets. And, and ah. how how weird is it for them to say it's D.C., but it's actually obviously Cleveland. Even I know that it's Cleveland. Yes. And like for me, honestly, after living there for a year or so, I do see where it could be. If you're not from the area, you definitely have like there are buildings there that I'm convinced are inspired by buildings from Chicago, New York, L.A., like just because of the time they were built in. Mm -hmm. But unless you are really good with details and you've lived it, you've experienced it, you honestly it's it's just enough to know that it's not what it is or at least question it. Um, for me, the well, the big thing in our state is the a Christmas story and how we see Higbee's in when Ralphie goes to see the Santa 
and we're just like, um, that's not Indiana, that is downtown Cleveland. Like, <laughs> I've walked past that window plenty of times and visited, I haven't visited the house actually, but I've been past it. And like, I know, like, we all know that's not Indiana. But um, no, for me, it's, um, I would definitely say people could get, it's just because of the amount of screen time each building or each location has that you don't really get the chance to look at the details. Mm-hmm. But if you, like I said, if you've experienced it, if you've lived it, if you know it, then you're like, okay, that's not New York. That is downtown Cleveland. I know that pothole. Like, I know that corner. <laughs> I know that building. I've walked past it to go to work. Like, so it, it's it's very, um, if you're detailed-oriented, yes. But for the most part, I would say it could be easy to confuse or at least depending on how much screen time it gets or how much um, attention it gets in general. Yeah, it would just be okay, that's another building. That's just what I found, at least. Okay, absolutely. Um, so uh, another thing I was noticing and, and in my research is, um, and I had remembered this at the time and I didn't understand it, I still don't understand it, was, okay, so critics across the board love this film. Um, but what I remembered from it was all of the controversy surrounding this movie um, uh and doing some uh, some research and deep diving, kind of looking at at the the, the periodicals at the time, uh, like finding like think pieces that they were writing at the time, and talk about hot takes. Like there were, of course, male writers all kind of contributing, talking about um, about how this like how this movie was reckless and it was irresponsible because it showed um, women on the road killing uh, killing somebody indiscriminately not really getting the point uh, not really getting the point of the film which it always postulated to me it's like so if you change the role if you change the genders it becomes Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which is a, <laughs> which is a movie that's beloved by all um why is it like and it, and it's like I I kind of know the answer, but I want to know what you guys think. Why isn't Thelma and Louise kind of talked about in the same breath as as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Because essentially, they are the masculine, feminine versions of each other. Um, of course, told in different times, like different purposes, but ultimately the sto- like a bromance and a sister rom- a sister mance between two friends, same kind of setting outlaws but we give so much credence to butch and sundance but not thelma and louise thoughts and comments on that we'll we'll start with marie Hmm. well i mean the obvious one is because people are not interested in female characters because the films are made for you know young men allegedly who are the ones who go to the cinema and People forget that women like to go to this. We're mostly white men, not you know, not to bring things back into the twenty-first century again or anything. But um, I can imagine that it, there weren't that many women writing about it, and so it was like, yeah, this is this is okay, but. I mean, I'm guessing what you've read, but I should imagine that's a lot to do with it, that women's stories are not seen as as important as men's stories. Maybe. Olivia? No, I, I agree with that to a point. I think for 
me, it's just... Although, I, for me, what I noticed most about... I wouldn't say reference to, but Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid is obviously the final scene and just what happens next. It's just a freeze frame. So, uh, for me, I would say it's kind of hard because I haven't put too much thought into it, more than um, into the question you're specifically asking. For me, I think at this point, all I could say is that one came before the other. And whether it had been Thelma and Louise before Butch, or Butch before Thelma and Louise as it was, I feel like either or would have been seen as, okay, this is the male version of this, or this is the female version of this. And whatever came last of the two would have been treated the same way. Although I do think that if Butch Cassidy came after Thelma and Louise, and they were like, oh, that's a connection to Thelma and Louise. It still would have gotten more recognition, just because, as Marie pointed out, a lot of critics are men, are white, pro-men, and although there's nothing wrong with that, it's just, it's a certain view. It's only one type of view, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think if Thelma and Louise came out before Butch Cassidy and Sundance hit, it might have weighed more of a like, oh, they're just referencing this film, and okay, it's indifferent. But I still think that two male leads would have overpowered that. And I, I don't know, I, I might be getting a little off track here. For me, that's just what I see it as at this point. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Oh, no, it definitely does. Both of your, both of your answers are, 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 are completely valid and... Um, I was very curious about that. And with leading into that, um, I've, okay, so there's this feature that I've been, I've been, um, I've been doing on the older films that we, uh, that we talk about. And I find that it, it leads into, for me, um, a bit more of a, a, a prescient discussion about the acting and the directing. Um, and I do re, I, I postulate a remake of the film circa 2018. So what I'm going to do is I'm springing this on you. I know I'm sorry for this. Um, I didn't <laughs> I didn't prep you guys for this, but I always like to see where lizard brains go, um, especially <laughs> when you're when you're when you're uh, when you're essentially like when you guys are you guys are both film critics. And so you guys are constantly thinking about film and you're constantly you have your favorites for things. So we're going to remake film and Louise and we're going to start from the top and work our way down. So we're going to first start off with, and I've not even prepared for this. Um, I'm going to go like, I, I want to actually hear what you ladies have to say about this. So um, we'll start off with Olivia with, yeah. okay. So if like the way that I postulate this is that I'm a studio head, I've given the green light to develop and make uh, Thelma and Louise. So I need a director, a writer, and a cast. So the first thing I'm going to do is have you cast or have you um, choose a director that you would think would fit a remake for Thelma and Louise. Wow. And if you type up, if you have to type, don't worry about it. You can always bring up your IMDb page. That's what I do when I do this. Um, and like I said, on the fly, it's it's no big deal. <laughs> I always <laughs> just find it very fun to do this because, like, it, it, it forces you to really think about, like, the type of director that you would want to direct 
a film like this? Do you want an action director? Do you want a drama director? Do you want somebody who does primarily comedies? Somebody who's I just have two names that come to mind that okay. if they could do it together would probably balance it out a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, Catherine Bigelow and Sofia Coppola. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I, I and I understand. Oh, you could you elaborate? Uh, I can kind sure. of. I can see. I can totally see it. But I'd like to hear what you, why you would say those two. I would say Catherine Bigelow and Sofia Coppola. Not um, not just because both have two different, not entirely different styles of films that they've made. Um, I think they just both they complement each other both in their experiences and their ages, their approaches to women in their films as well as the genres that they tend to represent. Sophia is more, uh, her films tend to be a little bit softer with some harsh edges, and then Catherine's tend to be just harsh and action-packed. Um, for me, I feel like if they collaborated, it could give, I'm not saying the two of them could be the next Ridley Scott, but I would say two points of view from two women that I feel are similar but different enough it could benefit a remake because I think if you were to just remake them on Louise in general that would be a very cautious thing to do but it could be done if just well produced well staffed well casted and I think those two um two directors would be they could feed off each other and we could get something that's not necessarily a remake in the sense, but like also it's just modern and that's just kind of where I'm coming from with those were the first two names that came to mind. I don't know about you, Marie, if you had anyone else in mind. Yeah. Um, I definitely want a female director on this. Yes. I would say, um, and yeah, it's really interesting whether you go the more action route or the more friendship bond between the women route. Yeah. Um, hmm. I agree with you. I think remaking it would be a travesty. I think, you know, we, we shouldn't really, we shouldn't even really be having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. But, I, it's a good one to have, but it's like, but, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> like, so let, let, let me just say that to start with. I, I actually, I'm not having this conversation. I, I'll deny everything. I, I, yeah. Um, yeah. But with if that, I had to answer, yeah. Yeah, in that in mind. I mean, ah, oh, that's really interesting. It, oh, it, it does it does really exercise that brain, doesn't it? Like to th really think yeah. about what you would want in a director. Um, yeah. I, I do have a I, I have a suggestion for this because it was the first person I actually thought of. Um, because she's just such a special director, but I'll let you, I'll definitely let you, uh, you, do you want to think about it? And then I can just kind of bite to bite time. I can, I can talk about my, on, my you, choice. You jump in and I'll have a think. Yeah. Okay. So my initial thought was Lynn Ramsey and the reason why, oh, Lynn, wow. yeah. And the reason why I said Lynn Ramsey is because a special movie dis requires a very special director. Lynn Ramsey is of my, my, of my film of my filmmakers that I love and adore, she's like currently working. She's probably top five. Um, you, when you watch something like Ratcatcher, 
you understand you're in the hands of a like a truly talented filmmaker. But by the time you get to we need to talk about Kevin, you are in the hands of a master and you will follow her anywhere. And I feel like she has enough political purpose with her films and especially if you've if you've seen her if you've seen her most recent film uh uh you were never really here mm-hmm. oh man you can just tell that she's she has an arsenal in her that is beyond most of her counterparts and it's just a shame that she doesn't do there's a reason why she's special and it's because I honestly think it's because she takes her time with making making films and I'm honestly glad that she didn't make Jane got a gun um because I feel like after seeing that product and actually reading the script, it's beneath her. It really is. And I'm glad that she left it. And I'm glad that she went to You Were Never Really Here. And you, the concept of, of Lynn Ramsey doing Thelma and Louise and writing the script is just, that's something special to me. Like, that would elevate it to the point to where I could go, you know what? This classic, I'm okay with her taking it on because she's going to make something completely different. And allow her to do whatever she wanted to do, of course. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Marie. Okay. So, I have a, I have a director. Okay. But it would certainly make it a very different film. Mm-hmm. But I would invite Jane Campion to do it. Ooh, I like that. I do too. Jane Campion of 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 the piano, uh, another Harvey Keitel film, um, and yeah, that's so true, actually, yeah. and so many other films. But I always I'm drawn to the like that was my first Jane Campion film, um, which is just an amazing uh, talk about an amazing feminist film. Like that's just mind blowingly good. Um, yeah. Okay. No, I like that. I like that. And the best the best part about this is, would you want each one of these? Uh, female directors to write it because they're both the, all of them are female writer directors would you want them to rewrite the script or would you want to bring in another like say a female screenwriter to give it a different perspective I think I'd be open to either or option it just it would depend on what the result is it, it, like we've said like making remaking it is just like uh, so it'd be it would really have to sell me okay absolutely um so you know what's coming next? The mm-hmm. the dynamic duo of Thelma and Louise. Why don't we start with um, Thelma, who was played by uh, Perfection by Gina Davis. Do you guys have thoughts on who you would... And let us uh, let us be clear about this. In the films, so that everybody understands who's not seen it yet, which if you haven't seen it, stop this and go, actually. I should have said this <laughs> earlier. Go stop this freaking podcast and watch the movie. Then come back and listen to this. But... Um, Thelma is definitely younger than Louise. Um, she is, yeah. Uh, she, like by probably a, anywhere between eight year, eight to ten years, I would say. Like something like that, at least a decade. Exactly. Yeah. So you would, with that, we would want to cast somebody a little bit younger in the Thelma role. So with that, did you guys have any any thoughts about that? And then we'll start with we'll start with yeah. Marie this time. And then we'll yeah. go to Olivia. Okay, I think I would choose somebody like um, Google Mombatha Raw. I like that. Um, yeah, I think, because I've seen her in, in a couple of things, and she can be uh, kind of a bit... Um, I suppose under the thumb, but also, but also strong. 
she can kind of let let go and and she's young enough I think she may even be a little too young I don't know maybe not um, but I think I would go with someone like her I think she's got a lot of versatility that I mean there are other people that I would like but I think they'd be a bit too just a bit too old to to really do it justice she, she's actually great in one of the more recent love stories that I've really attached onto, which is um, Beyond the Lights. If you've seen, oh that. yeah, 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 where she plays this Rihanna slash Beyonce style pop star, and mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's a very beautiful uh, rom- romance. Um, she's really good in that. I, I like that choice. I like that choice a lot. Um, Olivia, do you have thoughts? I'm still trying to pick, honestly. I not the, the thing is, I'm not really having too many people come to mind that would be my personal preference. Mm-hmm. Again, I I might just have to take the stance on it overall. If you remade it, you would really have to sell, like, just give me a bunch of options and resell it because I mm-hmm. really sell it to me because I can't, I can't seem to grasp the ideal pairing of it for me, other than just who I'd want to be at the helm of it. I feel like um, it, it would just depend on who's at the helm of it to choose the cast, and then it would that would be it for me. That's just where I'm probably going to have to stand on it because it's just okay. It's, then take it take it yeah. from the perspective of okay. So like how I do it is I take it like once I have the director, then I do exactly what you're talking about. So approach it from like say so with Catherine Bigelow and Sophia Coppola co-directing, who would you think would would make a good person to direct that? If you can even think of it, if you can't. We'll move on, and I'll tell. I'll say what my my choice was. Um, I I would. I think out of all the names that have come to mind, that I would consider. I might consider. I don't know. I think I might just hand this one off to you, Adam. It's still kind of like a fresh <laughs> idea to think about. Okay. Maybe in the later, but I'll be able to have like an actual list for you. Okay. So, um, I I thought about this and. The person that I feel could possibly uh, who, who could do it, um, and it, because she's younger, is um, Anna Kendrick. Ah, oh, okay. Anna mm. Kendrick has this, like we've seen the softer side of Anna Kendrick. We've seen the mile a minute talking. Um, I think that you get her into this kind of role because she's in her mid to late twenties now, and I think it would be a very interesting. Uh, and a very interesting role for her. Yes. So, and then um, you have somebody like Lynn Ramsey directing her in my version, where you have a great director being able to modulate the the performance and guide her through the trickier waters of it that may be something that she's not done recently, uh, or at all, for that matter. Um, so, yeah. We come to Louise. The The... Louise, who played iconically by Susan Sarandon. So I'm going to, do you want me to go first, Marie? And then, or yeah, do you? go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, so I thought about this and there are two people that come to mind that I think, like, I, I couldn't choose between, I can't choose between the two. So I'm just going to say them. Um, I would want either, and I'm preferencing towards more towards, Jessica Chastain. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. She yeah. has, like, I'm thinking about somebody who's compartmentalized, 
who has that ability, who you've seen on screen do that. Um, and also somebody who would not have an outrageous Southern accent. And she's done, she's done that Southern, well, Texas accent, because very specifically, she's from Texas. Mm. Um, and if you've watched Tree of Life, Jessica Chastain has been able to do that very subtly. Um, or you go big, both in stature and just as a superstar, and you get Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. And that's the very easy choice. I think that the Jessica Chastain choice is a little bit more subdued, but like Charlize Theron could play this in her sleep too. But it also, it brings into it a bunch of different things that maybe not necessarily you want in the role. Um, like baggage. Um, because of the mm-hmm. fact that she's such a strong, like she's such a strong action hero now. Um, maybe that might not be the balance that you want. So that's who I thought as Louise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought I, I thought you might go with Charlize at some point because she's I can see her in that role. I can also see Jessica Chastain in that role as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I might go for I might go for someone like Rosario Dawson. I like that. I, I like uh, your cast. Now, would you still have it? Okay, so my question to you is this. Because you've gotten two, um, two black actresses, would you still set it in the South? Or would you, would you change it, the location? Would you do a location change? Would you modernize it? Was there any kind of thing that you would do? Because what I would do is I would actually change the setting. Like, I would change it to, if you're going to do it, why don't you set it in, in L.A. and then go someplace else or started in New York and go and have them go into a trip someplace else and let Lynn Ramsey kind of do her thing the way that she can. So with that, would you? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I I think perhaps for me, I'm not as hung up on the geography of it because it means less to me over here than Mm -hmm. it it does to you, obviously. Um, There's no, I mean, the Cali Curry is from Texas. So that's why I suppose Texas took the, center stage but i think you could quite easily have that go in a different direction um then drive in a different direction um to um and as i well i think by picking my director i said straight away it's going to be a different film so i don't know i mean this is off the top of our heads it's uh Mm-hmm. It's, it's 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 interesting to do it. So yeah, I mean you you wouldn't be tied to it. If you're going to if you're going to remake it, you need to add something to it. Yeah. If you're just going to do the same thing again, there's no point. So yeah, let's have them go somewhere else. Yeah. I feel like that too. Hmm. All right. Absolutely. And then uh, we're going to skip over everybody else except for the, the, the most iconic of, of them all, uh, which is JD, played by Brad Pitt. Who would you suppose could do that today? <laughs> A younger star on the rise. Yeah, well, I have... Shall I go? Because I have one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I have one too, but you can go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, go. I need the same person. Oh, no, possibly not. Go on then, you go, you go. Well, I was going to say, for the previous casting, I was also thinking Reese Witherspoon. Oh, oh yeah. I like she that, too. be the next Sarandon in that. But for uh, JD, I'm going to have to, I feel like everyone would try to push Channing Tatum, personally. But I think he's a little too old. Yeah. 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 For it. Um, 
but that was like my first option. I think that point it would just that where I would also lose it because it's like you're just trying to play to a certain audience in that <laughs> way. But um, oh gosh, what is his name? It's escaping me at the moment. But I feel like somebody for JD. It, it depends again if we want to switch the location, if we want to take in consideration um, different, yeah, just a different location, different region. But I might, for now, I feel like it would try to get Tatum to do it, honestly. Or okay. um, Tom Holland. Tom Holland oh. is a good choice. Oh, yeah. Because he's yes. up and coming, people know him, and like, it would bring in a new fan base, I think, just because it's like, oh, hey, like, he was in this, go see this now, kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's, I mean, it's sad to say because Tom Holland is so tiny. Um, he's this, the age appropriate because Brad Pitt was about 21 when he made this and Tom Holland's approaching 21. I mean, he's 20. So that's that's kind of like the the perfect age range. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I like I, I actually like both those choices because Channing Tatum is the I mean, you know, it's the it's the thirsty version of it. It's like the yeah. like it's the automatic. OK, yes. OK, so we got the magic mic thing going on with the cowboy hat. OK, I see where you're going with this. And then you've got the Tom Holland one, which is like Beautiful. exactly and young mm-hmm. and, you know, it's like that that unexpectedness that you would initially that you initially have with Brad Pitt, which is, is like, you know, yeah. fi- the it's the face and you go, wow, you know, he's a good looking kid. And then, and then you see him and you go, Whoa, he's a really good looking kid. So no, yeah. I like both choices. Um, Marie, you said you had, you had a choice and I'm wondering if it's the one that I'm thinking. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's no. I also have a, I also have someone to cast for Harvey Keitel's role. Oh, okay, okay. But but um, but you're not casting that, so. Oh no! I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear. That. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll do that one first because that's that's outside. I'm going to cast my boy Jake as Harvey Keitel, obviously. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say JD, but no, I like that choice. I like no, no, that. no. Oh okay. no, no. No, no, my boy Jake's too old for JD. Uh, for JD, I'm going to cast um, Jamie Bell. Oh, yes! <laughs> oh my gosh, you are so right. I think he has the right combination of... Um, he's he's known, but not, not as well known. And certainly maybe not stateside as here. Um, he, he has that voice charm to him still. Yeah, exactly. And also, if you saw the what was it called now? Film stars don't die in Liverpool. Did you yes, see that? I did. He with um, Annette Benning, that combination with the age gap was just electric. I thought he would. He was great in that. I think he'd be good for this for JD. I agree. I agree. That's that is that is really good. And you know what? Oddly enough, Jamie Bell and Tom Holland kind of look similar. I'm not they gonna do. lie. They could no, play they brothers. Do, yeah. They could play yeah. play brothers. I now I just want a movie where they play like highway drifters named JD and DJ. <laughs> like one older, one younger. Then we're getting into this weird kind of my private Idaho kind of thing. We won't get into that. Um, any other choices that you guys have? 
Okay. Mail or for either of the other ones that we talked about. Okay. No, no, no. Absolutely. Um, so something want to ponder about. Now you got me like, okay, now if we remade, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, I again. <laughs> Oh, then all of the JD choices are applicable for everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is like, like a game I'm going to be playing now for the rest of the day. It's just like, I had to recast this. What would I... Oh my gosh, there's so many then, options. Yes. Then, then we need to talk offline uh, about your yeah. uh, about some maybe possibilities with writing. To be continued. Stay exactly. Tuned. Um, that, I did dude, have, that sounds right. <laughs> I did have two choices for JD. I could not think about this and not get into this fun and see what you guys think about this. So I went two opposite directions. I went with the thing that I was hoping one of you was going to say so I could laugh because it's funny to me that this this kid is like become such a big thing for everybody um timothy chalamet oh okay and it's just because if you think about a drifter he would probably look more like timothy chalamet and less like brad pitt at least now yes um and of course because i mean you know you're like you want to play up to the ladies and it seems like a lot of ladies young and old love them some timothy chalamet I'm not going to deny that, even though I may not get it right now. Kind of like the way that I didn't get it when when little Leo was little Leo. But it's OK. I'm not it's not for me to get. Um, and then uh, the opposite, like the other counterpoint I went with um, is I thought it'd be interesting to cast Winston Duke. Now, do you guys both know who Winston Duke oh, is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I oh, love you, yeah, Marie. <laughs> so. <laughs> He's another guy that I feel like, I mean, is extremely talented. I can't wait for Jordan Peele's Us to see what yes. what Jordan Peele has in store for us. But not only that, but what Winston Duke can do uh, with a different role. But I mean, and then just generally, like across the internet, the ladies seem to be very thirsty for Winston Duke. And I cannot, I cannot fault them for that. Because as Umbaku in Black Panther. I mean, he was the man. I mean, you know, it's like he he gets this role where he gets to come in and be like the equal to Chaka, uh, T'Challa, um, Chadwick Boseman's character, but in a completely different way. And he also has the best line of the he also has the best line of of the year to me. And I think it's going to be the best line for for the rest of the year. You know, we're going to eat the one about being vegetarian. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm a vegetarian. It was just such a it was such a great moment. Um <laughs> So yeah, those those two, and then uh, to jump off of the um, the the detective role, um, actually wanted to flip it and make it a female role, and I could not I could not think of anybody better who would have more compassion but still be a hard ass than Emily Blunt. Yes. Oh. Could come Good. in and be a hard ass, but also be completely compassionate and understanding of these female of these females' plights. Because in today, like if you're doing an update to it today, I think that it does. I mean, like there is a lot to be said about police and having somebody that is like it's it's weird how we've kind of rolled back a little bit, but I feel like that would make it even a, a greater counterpoint. Um, and then. Yes. Oh God. Yes. She could also play the detective. You could also flip that role and have Emily Blunt do the Louise role, 
and yeah. Jessica Chastain do, or even Rosario Dawson do the detective role too. Uh, well, I would like Viola Viola Davis to do the detective Ooh. role if we're casting um. women in that. I just want her to do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so yeah. good. I love her so much. If it, if, it can't, if it can't be Jake, it can be Viola Davis. There we go. Yeah. I mean, how much are you, is everybody looking forward to the new Steve McQueen? Just because she's in it, playing a bad. Oh. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I will yeah. go see anything with her in it. Yes, yeah. she's she is great. Um, she definitely long overdue for an Oscar. She should have won it about. Uh, she should have won it for Doubt, but I'm you know I'm neither here nor there. Um, yeah. And then um, I actually thought for Daryl, like I, I actually care uh, cast Daryl. Like I was thinking in my head of, uh, about Daryl, and um, there's two people that come to mind. That for me, one is playing a, playing with type because everybody hates him. Why not get T.J. Miller? I know that we shouldn't be supporting the man, yeah. but if you're going to get a hateable douchebag, T.J. Miller. But then on the opposite side, somebody who could play a douchebag who I feel would could be able to get Anna Kendrick in a certain kind of a mentally abusive sort of way. And I know this sounds really bad, but um Jonah Hill, but but specifically chunkier Jonah Hill. Yeah, <laughs> like he would be the perfect person to play to play him. And I couldn't think of anybody to play Jimmy because Michael Madsen is doing such his James Dean Elvis by way of Elvis thing that I'm like, I can't think of anybody nowadays that kind of does that. I mean, it's just Michael Madsen. That was Michael Madsen's shtick, and it's been his yeah, shtick. I, I couldn't. Th- I mean. One person I could see possibly doing it might, but he's just too old for it. But like he was the only person that came to mind was Ron Perlman. Whoa, yes. He has that edginess to him from Sons of Anarchy and everything. So, yeah. What about about the Gosling? Ryan? Hmm. Uh Actually, how about this? How about you go older and you go Idris Elba? Oh, and then you've got the whole thing of like, if you have Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba, you get the, you get the whole, you want you, the thing that you wanted to see happen in Molly's game, which you knew it could never happen. But also you get a, you get this whole thing of like, both of them are a little bit older. They've, they've traveled roads and they could just play it because Idris Elba plays Simmer better than anybody else in the business. Mm. Mm. You know, so Idris Elba, maybe? Yeah. Yeah? Why not? Exactly. Because, I mean, there's really... There's no adults. Like, I mean, you have to have somebody who's a reasonable adult. And a beard doesn't make somebody an adult. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess you could also do... No, because he still has that boyish nature to him still. Like, I'm sorry. Jake is still about five years off from being, like... Like, man Jake Jake Gyllenhaal. Really? Oh, yes. I beg to differ. Oh, well. But then I would cast. I will cast him in anything. You watch. I will <laughs> cast him. Yes. I would. I'll find a way to cast him in anything. So, yes. You know. Well, I mean, you love Jake. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I do. I do. And I'm not sorry. <laughs> no, sorry, not sorry. I mean, no, I, no. obviously, I mean, we did. We did a whole podcast. Uh, we had did two episodes uh, podcast where you could just talk about Jake. We did. 
We did. (laughs) (laughs) So that does it for our remaking of three remakes, not just one, but three remakes of of Thelma and Louise coming in 2019 to theaters nowhere, guys. Um, Can't wait for it. I'm going to get front row seats. And with that, we're going to be wrapping it up. Um, I wanted to let each of you have your final thoughts on Thelma and Louise, kind of get out whatever you, uh, what we didn't have time to cover. So we're going to start with you, Olivia. We'll start with your final thoughts. My final thoughts, it was good to, I like I said at the very beginning, I think having a little more knowledge of film, how it's made, how it's studied, how it's presented and, just a little more maturity this time watching it. I feel like I have a new respect for the film. I think I took away things I never noticed in the first place. Uh, for me, it was just... I was... I love that it was... It didn't feel like an assignment. It didn't feel like, oh, I have to watch this to talk about it. I felt like I was watching it to learn from it. And it motivated me and inspired me, even though it's, you know, relatively fiction. And um, But, yeah, I would say I left watching it feeling a new sense of just unlimitedness, of liberation and freedom from it. So, I, yeah, that is where I'm going to end on it. That is kind of perfect. Uh, thank you. Uh, Marie, oh, your final thoughts? Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, giving it a rewatch and I, I enjoyed the whole experience. Uh, I'm left with the, that kind of feeling, though, of things haven't changed that much and you see it on screen. And So at some point, Louise says, you know, what do you think? We, we can't hand ourselves into the police. People, people saw you dancing with him they're not going to believe you just because she's drunk. And I just sat there and thought, oh, well, this was 1991. How many decades ago? And, you know, things are still exactly the same. And that kind of saddens me in a real-life situation. But the fact that that is still on screen and that the film is still being watched means that the message is still coming across. So it's still there to be had. So, yep. Uh, very good. Thank you for asking me to watch it because I enjoyed it. Yeah, same here. Absolutely. And my final thoughts are just I'm listen to what these writers, these these critics have to say about this this like the entire podcast. This is all aimed telling you get your ass out of your chair and go and either rent this on iTunes or Amazon or better yet go on to Amazon, look for the physical media version of it like the disc because i know that you guys have blu-ray players physical (laughs) media go ahead and buy it because i can tell you honestly it is a it's 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 a dyed in the wool classic like i don't normally talk about dyed in the wool classics but because of the fact that i don't see many people on the regular talking about this film it needs to be discussed and the only way that we're going to do that is if we have people critics like myself olivia and marie talking about these films because i know that you guys are more well evolved i know my audience is more well evolved and understands that there there are movies past to the 2000s but for people that are just joining us that are taking a risk yes a 20 a 27 year old film is highly prescient to today and 
doesn't feel it. There's moments where it feels dated. Yes. But for the most part, it is, it's a very refreshing film and, um, well worth your time. So with that being said, social media, um, you can reach the B movie podcast on three different sets of social media. Um, the letterbox, not the letterbox, but just letterboxed, um, Instagram and Twitter. The handle is all the same. The letter B, the word movie, the word pod, the B movie pod or B movie pod altogether. No lines, no dashes, no bullshit. Um, if you go ahead and sign up for letterbox and you follow us, you're actually getting tips in advance of what we're covering for the podcast. So you would have already known that this, these two movies that we're going to be talking about this week are being covered. Um, so it's all more, uh, added influence for you to actually go ahead and follow us on the B movie or on letterbox, but you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. So I'm going to hand it over first to Marie, then to Olivia. Um, where can they find you on social media? Marie. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ReezyPie, that's R-E-E-S-I-E-P-I-E, and um, I'm also on Letterboxd under the same name. Absolutely, and I will add a caveat, especially if you like tennis, Marie's your girl, your lady, <laughs> you go ahead and follow her, and she's got lots of lots of opinions about Wimbledon. Oh, she did. Uh, so please, you will enjoy it. And also, if you go back a little bit, you, she also has some opinions about World Cup, too. So... With that, let's go hand it over to Olivia. Olivia, where we can where can we find you on social media this week? On Twitter, Instagram, pretty much all around the field. It's at Olivia O L I V I A. The letter K is in Catherine M seven, and um, I cover a little bit of every. I post a little bit of everything from sports to pop culture to American Sign Language and everything that sparks my interest. Yeah. Hopefully, it sparks yours too. Absolutely. And you guys can find their work because um, Olivia just posted her her first article um, for the site on the movie aisle. As I was saying earlier, you can also find um, Marie's work on on the uh, on the movie aisle. And she's got her great on ongoing series, um, Marie versus horror, where she's taking a look at specific horror. Um, we just posted one last week. Um, and, uh, it's a monthly column. I honestly feel like it's some of the best stuff that we have on the site right now. So please go ahead and read that. And then if you're, she has become quickly become our, our, basically our foreign film correspondent if you will <laughs> she there is there is not a foreign film that i've uh, that that she gets offered that she does not review so um we're really glad to have that kind of point of view because um you know with the movie aisle i i, I know that i don't I don't pimp it as much as I should but it's not a pop culture site we are a film we we are a film review site we don't we touch we touch a little bit of pop culture but it's usually from the guys of business and our our staff writer logan who's not written recently he's got other things in the pot uh that he's been doing um getting his social media brand out there but he also appro he approaches anything with the pop culture from a business perspective so we're all seriously about films so if you don't if you if you're looking for marvel and Star Wars and Disney and all that other crap casting news. You got to go someplace else to get it. But if you're serious about film, uh, the movie aisle is where to go. We still keep tongue firmly planted into cheek 
Um, obviously, if you've read my film reviews, you will know that, considering what I cover. But it's all to say that it's some really great content out there. I'm very proud of my writers and the work that they do for us. So I can't help but pimp it, especially when they're on uh, they're on the podcast. <laughs> and most of all, guys, I want to thank you for listening. Your listenership means the world to me and to the podcast. It's what keeps us going on this re- weird, curated, crazy journey where we're looking at forgotten films and not so forgotten films. Um, you know that there's no Patreon, so any kind of bonus episode is just a bonus episode that you don't have to pay for because we we do this out of love. Maybe at some point I will get a Patreon going, if we, if we, uh, but at this point, no. So with that, guys, we will be back next time with... Um, a very, very culturally relevant film and a special guest that um, is her first time talking about film. And um, I'm going to just leave it at that. I think it's going to be a surprise for you guys um, talking about this next film. And if you want to know what the next film is, get on Letterboxd. And with that, guys, talk to you soon. (laughs) 